with COVID, a lot of people have suddenly started thinking a lot more about all those global supply chains that suddenly were at risk because things couldn't be moved anymore. How can we actually produce things more locally? How can we be more self-sufficient? And for that, it's very good to be able to use those residues that would otherwise not be used. Welcome to Venturing Women, a podcast about female founders, investors and ecosystem enablers. Hi, this is Daria Kamkalova. Have you ever wondered what happens to wood waste resulting from furniture manufacturing, construction works, or any other industrial processes? Cooking rice for dinner, have you ever pondered about the destiny of rice straw? Most probably not. Globally, over 1.0 billion tons of waste woody biomass are generated annually in forms of waste wood, palm residues, and wheat and rice straw. Where do these 1.0 billion tons land? Mostly in boilers. This means burnt woody biomass delivers no further value and exacerbates air pollution. Today, I'm speaking with a founder who addresses this issue. Florence Kschwendt is the co-founder and CTO of Lixia. During her PhD at the Chemical Engineering Department at Imperial College London, she co-invented a process which uses an environmentally friendly solvent to treat waste woody biomass. This process separates different components in wood and agricultural residues. These components, in turn, can then be used to produce new chemicals and materials, shifting our reliance away from petroleum. Hi, Florence. Hi, Daria. How do you define the problem Lixay is trying to solve? So we're actually tackling two problems. One is that as the world is transitioning to net zero, we need to find a way to produce chemicals and materials from renewable sources. And at the moment, most of the bio-derived products that we're using are quite costly to produce and are often made from food-grade sources, for example, sugar or corn. And the sustainability benefits of those products compared to the standard petroleum-based product are quite limited. That's one of the problems. And the other one is that, as you've mentioned, we're burning a lot of waste wood and agricultural residues without capturing their value. Especially in Southeast Asia, a lot of rice straw or cereal straws are left in the field and are just burned there. And that causes a lot of air pollution, which then in turn results in respiratory health problems. And, um, and it's a big issue. And these two challenges are what we're out to solve in order to both avoid global warming, but also pollution and ecological breakdown. Can you describe the technology that you've developed? Yes, I can try. So it's a, a chemical process. We've developed a new type of solvent. The type of solvent that we're using is called an ionic liquid. It's actually a salt that is liquid at room temperature. And what it allows us to do is separate the different components that wood and agricultural residues are composed of. Wood and also grasses and straws are made of three main components. They're called cellulose, which a lot of us might know from, for example, paper. And then there is lignin, which is kind of a glue in the wood. And then there are hemicelluloses, which are, it's like, kind of like the little sister of cellulose. Both cellulose and hemicelluloses are made from sugars, but different sugars. So they're chemically quite different. And what is important is that those components um, are separated from each other to produce products that can then, for example, replace petroleum-based chemicals or plastics that we're using today. Can you give us some example of those products that can be then produced from the output of your processes? 
Yeah, absolutely. So the cellulose, for example, already today is used to make paper and also, for example, textile fibers, viscose. But we're looking at, for example, producing molded fiber products like egg trays, for example. But molded fibers can be used for a lot more. So they can, for example, replace styrofoam packaging or or other petroleum-based plastic packaging that we use today. Then lignin, I've mentioned, is kind of like the glue in the wood. So when we extract the lignin, it can still be used as something like a glue or an adhesive, which are used a lot in furniture to like hold different panels or different materials together. And then the hemicelluloses that I've mentioned, we turn those into small molecules. For example, furol, that's a chemical the chemical industry uses to make loads of different things from. So that could go into pharmaceuticals, that go into paint, it can be turned into new polymers. So that's really a chemical that has loads of different applications. What's the innovation behind this technology? What makes it new? Our innovation lies in the use of the solvent that we've developed, so this ionic liquid. As I've mentioned, they're liquid salts, and now you might wonder why would anyone want to use a salt? The thing with salts is that they don't evaporate, and that's actually really important for safety. In industry, when they use chemical solvents, often they're very flammable and they evaporate at a relatively low temperature, and that can be very dangerous because that can mean that the workers around it are exposed to dangerous fumes, it can lead to explosions, it's a huge fire risk. And using an ionic liquid, a liquid salt, is actually much safer. So we don't expose anyone in the vicinity to any toxic fumes. There is no risk of any explosions or any fire risk. Our innovation specifically is is using a solvent that can also be made really cheaply from abundant raw materials. So people have been looking at using very fancy solvents to separate the different components in, in wood. and And often those solvents are actually quite expensive. So if you then want to compete with the petrochemical industry that is like super optimized, very quickly it becomes too expensive. And what is important for us is that we we started with a solvent that actually can be made cheaply and easily from widely available materials and that we use that solvent and don't go for like the fanciest solution. And I think this economical feasibility is something that makes it very, very difficult to compete with the petrol industry. Yes, that's correct. The petrochemical industry has been around for 150 or so years. And when they started, they weren't that efficient or optimized either. They just had quite a lot of time to optimize. It's very difficult now to come in and trying to compete with this industry that squeeze out every last bit of value from the entire barrel of oil that comes out of the of the ground and in a way we need to do the same now with with biomass so we need to also find a very first of all a cost effective way of separating the components but then the other aspect is to actually get value of all the components the same way that the petrochemical industry gets value out of every component of that barrel of oil that comes out of the ground all right let's do a quick recap here I'm not going to lie to you. Last time I spoke about chemical processes, I was in high school, and that's almost 19 years ago. I know it all can sound a bit confusing, and rightly so. Florence's job and the technology she co-invented is highly complex. However, we can boil it down to a few simple things. Woody biomass, let it be wood or straw, consists of three components, including cellulose. These components are vastly different. 
Hence, to be able to recycle woody biomass, instead of just burning it, we need to separate those components and treat them differently. That's exactly what the Lexeia technology offers. The core innovation here lies in the how. The Lexeia solution is not only efficient, it's also much safer for anyone treating woody biomass than its alternatives, and it's cheap. In episode number 7, Oriana Brechka describes the challenge behind commercializing scientific research. Oriana points out that sometimes a technology that can address a certain issue does exist, but it's too expensive and economically unfeasible to be a commercial product. Lexeia deliberately uses cheap but efficient materials and their technology to be competitive. Finally, once we convert woody biomass into separate components, we can then use them to produce clothes, paint, glue, pharmaceuticals, and many other things. Imagine, instead of burning wood or plant residues and polluting air, we can recycle them, making a step closer to circular economy. Compared to petrol extraction, biochemistry as an industry is still in its nascence. Which latest trends or global events will influence the development of biochemistry as an industry? And how will real or potential food scarcity propel biochemistry startups? Something that was often sort of controversies is like food versus fuel around the biofuel production. And I think what we're now seeing is that there is a shift towards using non-food starting material. We see how people are also more aware of the massive land use that is used to produce feed for animals, for example. So the environmental impact our meat consumption has on the planet. And with that, we're seeing a lot of these alternative meat options popping up in the supermarket. A lot of these alternative meat products are still made from food sources. Sometimes they use pea protein or soya protein, but there are also some that use a fermentation process that just uses food sugar and then uses microorganisms to grow the product, like a a mushroom-based product. Now, mushrooms can also grow on sugars that don't come from food sources, so they don't necessarily need sugar that comes out of sugar beet or sugar cane. They can use sugars that come from cellulose, for example, and that's what you see in the forest, right? The mushrooms help with the natural decay of wood. They eat the, the, the sugar that is contained in the cellulose. It's very slow, but it does happen. So what we're now seeing is actually a demand for the cellulose substrate that we can produce, that we can separate from the other components in the wood that can then be turned into food. So actually using a non-food material to produce the food. With the recent um, invasion of Russia into Ukraine, a lot of people are worried about wheat supplies. Like Both Ukraine and Russia are very large producers and exporters of wheat. But what if we could produce food from the wheat straw and the rye straw? So that's then suddenly a new source of food that previously wasn't used for food. With COVID, a lot of people have suddenly started thinking a lot more about all those global supply chains that suddenly were at risk because things couldn't be moved anymore. How can we actually produce things more locally? How can we be more self-sufficient? And for that, it's very good to be able to use those residues that would otherwise not be used. So we may end up eating steaks made of wood. Yeah, potentially. Corn, for example, is a well-known brand that produces these meat alternatives. But yes, it could be that you end up eating a vegetarian bolognese that has mints made originally from wood cellulose. Yeah. 
Interesting. Is moving away from using oil for energy transport and plastics sufficient for a sustainable future? Will it be enough to substantially reduce the extraction of crude oil? The release of fossil carbon into the atmosphere, the carbon that comes from this crude oil that is extracted, is certainly a big contributor to global warming. But then there are also other contributors. And very big one is what is called land use change. So a lot of carbon is stored in our soil, also in forests. And when rainforest, for example, is dropped down and instead grazing land is, is made where forest used to be, that releases a lot of carbon as well, especially with the bioeconomy, where we are looking to use wood and agricultural residues. And we also need to be very careful about not accidentally causing um, negative effects in, in that way. One way to counteract that is to like invest into reforestation um, but for a truly sustainable future we need to both leave the carbon in the ground that is in the form of petroleum but we also need to take care of this carbon stock in the soil and in the vegetation that we have and then there is of course other things like biodiversity and generally reducing the pollution that also needs to be accounted for but managing the soil carbon and the and leaving the fossil carbon in the ground are two extremely important aspects. Let's go back to Luxia. How did a research project grow into a commercial product and a startup? So it actually started even before my time. So I moved to the UK for a master's back in 2012. And my master's supervisor and one of the previous PhD students, they had actually started on this research in around 2008, 2009. And it actually came from one of my co-founders now from her PhD research, where she accidentally left some samples on the bench overnight, and they absorbed moisture from the air. And the reason why this is important is because before everyone was trying to separate biomass components in a completely dry system. So all the moisture was removed from the system through like drying in an oven overnight. And one day she forgot to do that. And then her experiments worked, worked much better than when she did the drying. So she then filed a patent together with her supervisor and, um, and some other people involved in the project. And then by the time I finished my master's, my supervisor had quite a lot of funding available to continue this research because it was actually quite promising. So it wasn't just me. There were actually quite a few PhD students and master's students who had been working on that over the years. Now, I also did quite a few entrepreneurship programs during my PhD. And at some point, I approached my supervisor and was like, hey, you know, what's the plan here? Are you like... I think, you know, this, what we're doing in the lab is actually really cool. Are you doing something around that? Or is there going to be a job for me when I finish my PhD? And he was like, well, me and Aggie, the, the woman who forgot who, the samples, who forgot the samples, <laughs> <laughs> we were just thinking about doing this um, customer discovery program that Imperial was running at the time. And they said it's better if we're three people because it's quite a big workload. So I joined them. And then because I was still a student, so I was still able to sign up to loads of student entrepreneurship competitions. And we started getting quite a bit of traction and win quite a bit of prize money here and there. So once I actually finished my PhD, we had this like money sitting in my personal bank account <laughs> that was given um, to us because of the business idea that we were pitching. So that's when we decided to 
spin out the company. And then I was done with my PhD. So I, I, I ran the, the company for the first few years. There was a formal process to go through where all the inventors would automatically be given founder shares in the company and also Imperial College would get some shares in return for intellectual property. So Imperial College actually paid for filing all the patents initially. So there was a formal spinning out process. You mentioned that you attended a few entrepreneurship courses. Have you always wanted to be an entrepreneur? Not at all. It's not something that had ever crossed my mind as a child. My dad was a chemist, so chemistry is fun. I was just always very curious and knew I wanted to do something scientific, but I never had a clear career goal in that sense. Entrepreneurship and academia are two worlds apart. What were the transferable skills and which skills did you need to acquire when you, when you formed the company? Especially as a PhD student, you're used to having to acquire knowledge on your own. Of course, you can talk to your fellow PhD students and your supervisor, but often the project you're doing, no one else has done that before, right? The goal is that by the end of it, you're the world expert in that tiny niche. That's certainly something that was very useful as an entrepreneur. You need to become the one person that knows the most about your business, your tech, your customers, and this general attitude to going out there and trying to acquire knowledge is something super useful. Maybe some overlap is the communication. We, we're marketing a chemical process. Don't That's really, not easy. No, you need to be able to communicate your science, your story, your pitch Adapting accordingly to audience. your audience. Yeah. yeah, every time. I wouldn't say that everyone in academia is very good at that. Quite the, to the contrary, a lot of scientists are very bad at, um, in communicating their science. But especially in the climate science area, there is now a lot more emphasis on improving that. So during my PhD, I was also exposed to quite a lot of like, how do you communicate your research, your science to someone who doesn't have a science background? How do you make them care? So that was really useful. One thing that was quite a learning curve is as soon as you build a team, how do you manage other people? As a PhD student, you manage yourself, you manage your project. <laughs> it's not a very collaborative environment. You don't have team meetings all the time. So as we as a company grew, at some point we had a much bigger team. And then suddenly there are people who are like asking me, okay, what do we do? What's next? You need to find your management style. <laughs> that was certainly something where that I felt like coming just out of a PhD is not something I, I was prepared for. How big is the team now? So we have um, nine full-time employees and then a few more part-time and there are about 15 people overall. What helps you to adapt to the new role in this transition from being a researcher to the CEO of the company? And why did you change roles from CEO to CTO? To go from a researcher to a CEO, I think people sometimes imagine that as a huge thing. But the reality was that, of course, I was the CEO of a company that didn't have any employees or any physical assets. So CEO was just like three letters. <laughs> it wasn't quite as glamorous as people sometimes imagine. No? Um, no. It's disappointing. No, no five-star hotels, no <laughs> private jets. <laughs> well, you're on the Forbes list 30 under 30 in 2017. That sounds very glamorous. Um, there was a very glamorous cocktail event here in London, but um, that was about it, yeah. Um, 
where things really started to change was about two, two and a half years ago when we got 2.3 million euros from the European Innovation Council as a grant. That really allowed us to grow our team and also paid for our pilot plant, which we've now built in Sweden. And a few months just before the project started, we hired Christina, who took over the CEO role from me in January last year. Some people feel like, oh, it's a demotion. For me, the, the, the CEO role was not really a CEO role. It was like a bit of CEO, a bit of CTO, a bit of bookkeeping, a bit of marketing, a bit of business development, right? So you just, you pick a title, but at the end of the day, at the beginning, as a small team, you end up doing so many different things anyway. And as we started hiring people, I was able to like hand off different parts of what I was doing. And um, in the end, sort of like the last thing, the last two things I sort of had were the CEO and the CTO role. And it was the CEO role that I handed over and the CTO role that I kept. So then we officially changed my title to CTO. What made you do that? It wasn't that I was particularly enjoying everything or doing all, all those things. I think my strengths are certainly in the technical side of things. As a co-inventor of the process, I am the world expert in it. So it would have been extremely difficult to find someone to replace that. It's much easier to replace these so-called soft skills, transferable skills that Christina brought with her while um, being the CTO of a spin-out company that is commercializing the invention of the co-founders it's very difficult to find someone who would have an appropriate level of expertise in that new technology. No one's ever done that before. So it would have been a lot harder to find someone to replace that part of what I was doing. And it's also what I enjoy doing more. So I was more than happy to let go of the overall company leadership in turn for having more time to spend on the aspect that I actually like. So, Being the world expert in this technology... How much time do you spend in the lab these days? Hardly any. One of the first people that we hired, even before we got the grant, was a lab chemist. Going to the lab is a bit like entering a black hole. You come out of it and days have passed. <laughs> so <laughs> it's very difficult to um, get lab work done and keep on top of emails and having meetings. Most of my work is done in front of a laptop. <laughs> You began speaking about raising funds and you raised substantial sums from the European public funds. Did you choose this funding option just because it was readily available, even behind a paperwork wall, or was it a necessity stemming from the limited access to VC funding? I mean, it's always great to get grants because they don't dilute your equity, or at least a lot less. But it's true that we really struggle to raise venture capital funding. I'm pretty sure that the company would have died two and a half years ago if we hadn't gotten this grant. Think two, for 2.3? 2.3 million? Yeah, so th this grant was now 2.3 million euros. And then we also got 2 million euros from the European Innovation Council Fund. We got 2 million euros as a convertible low. They also make some equity investments these days. So we got a total of 4.3 million euros from the European Innovation Council. And before that, we had maybe a total of 100, 150,000 in the form of much smaller grants, also from the European Union. For a business like ours, where the technology risk is quite substantial, it's a new technology, it's a chemical technology where a lot of VCs 
don't really know the ins and outs. They, they're not experts in it. So yeah, it was very difficult to get traction with investors. What are you hearing from them? A lot of them are like, it's very capital intensive. We prefer to do software, artificial intelligence, things like that. The timelines are quite long for us. Realistically, you know, it's going to be several years until we start making substantial profits for some VC funds. The promises they've made to their investors are a quicker return. So that just doesn't fit with their timelines. Some VCs just genuinely say, look, this is not within our expertise and we don't think we can actually support you very well. So they prefer to put their money somewhere where they feel they can contribute with more than just the money with connections. And then sometimes you also just hear we're too early. They want to see a pilot plant first or they want to see more before they invest money. But somebody has to first invest money so that it can build this pilot plant. Yeah. And this is now the role that the European Union has taken but they've said yes we will invest that money so that pilot plant can be built and then the expectation is that when the pilot plant is finished that venture capital funding or non-government funding will step in we are seeing some investors now that want to know what is your potential impact and only if that's there the conversation progresses Is it more of exceptions or a noticeable trend? Sometimes it's difficult to say whether it's more talk than actual deploying money. At these at climate conferences, there is a lot of talk about we do have the money to fund everything we need to stop detrimental climate change. And it's a question of why is that money not being deployed? Somehow everyone agrees the money is out there. It doesn't actually cost that much if you think about it as, per, as a percentage of like global GDP, but somehow the money doesn't get invested. So there's still so much money getting invested into new oil explorations, in new pipelines, in infrastructure that if we're serious about decarbonizing our economy will not ever be used. So why do those investments get made and not investments into new technologies? What do you think would attract more VC investors and motivate them to put their money into highly innovative solutions like yours instead of yet another software company? Yeah, the UK has an enterprise investment scheme. If you can show that there's a high risk investment, they get tax breaks on the returns if it's successful. For us, it's not really an option because most of our money is spent in Sweden <laughs> at the moment. Different countries may have similar schemes. So there are sometimes tax breaks on things coming out of patents so that if you file a patent for the first few years, any income you generate from that invention has a lower tax rate to increase the potential upside of a return. The governments can certainly make it more attractive to invest into higher risk capital intensive industries to level the playing field a bit. Government grants, of course, are always useful. At the end of the day, it's the government's responsibility to make sure that we're on a path that allows us to have a safe future, safe from climate disasters and conflicts that can arise from it. So I do think it's certainly within the government's responsibility to make sure that these innovations do come to the market. And then it's our responsibility as citizens to make sure that we elect the governments that take care 
of this topic. Yeah, of course. The government, at least in our part of the world, is still democratically elected. At the voting box, it's our responsibility to make sure that those in power are the ones who who look after us. Indeed. Thanks for tuning in. If you like the show, share it with friends. Subscribe to our feed on Apple Podcasts or in your podcast app to never miss a new episode. Leave a review in the app you use. Reviews help us to get better and let more people discover this podcast. For updates, follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Telegram. 